0: Well, good morning. So it is good to be with you all, to see you. I know we've got several who are out of town this week as a mixture of travel and sickness. We certainly miss Ryan this morning and praying for a swift recovery on his part. But it is good to join together. It is good to be together with the body of Christ and to be able to share with one another both our encouragements, our answers to prayer, and the needs that we have, so we can come together as the body to lift them up, to to do what uh, the body of Christ is supposed to do—in encouraging, exhorting, and uh, one another—and uh, as we've done this morning through the Lord's Supper, to encourage one another in love and good deeds, especially while it is still today, as we anticipate the return of our Lord. So, it is good to be with you. Have you ever noticed, and perhaps it's you notice it a little bit less if you've been in church for any amount of time, but have you ever noticed how strange God is? He's really rather strange. Turn with me if you would to Isaiah 55. We won't stay here long this morning, but it's a it's a good place to begin. If you're Mark Ray, any place in Isaiah is a good place to begin. Isaiah 55, verse 6. This is how, the, how Isaiah describes the Lord, is how he describes this strangeness, this uniqueness. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And notice what he says. For my thoughts, that is God, it's swapped here, it's now God speaking. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God put it much more eloquently than he is strange, but he is strange to us nonetheless. He is different than us. He is unique from us. If the ultimate and end goal of this world and everything is the kingdom of God and the reign of Jesus Christ, then why such a circuitous, a roundabout way of getting there? Why not much more direct? Why put up with us? Why put up with the rebellious people? Why put up with a sinful people? Why allow sin to go unpunished? Why even forgive sin? He is a strange God indeed. This morning we come to a strange parable in Matthew 21. One that I think that if we're willing to look carefully and to slow down and examine it, It will help answer the question of why God is so strange in our eyes. Read along with me, if you would. Matthew 21, we'll begin down in verse 33. You may remember this is the second parable that Jesus delivers to the religious leaders as they confront him. And so Jesus says, Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. Literally, the word is fruit. The vine growers took his slaves, beat one, killed another, stoned a third, Here's where it gets really odd. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Now it's really weird. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper time. So Jesus said to them, Did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But... On whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard him, heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him a prophet. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the your word this morning as we open up and come to this parable that was given so long ago in the days before Christ's crucifixion. Father, help us to understand it. Help us to understand its significance as it relates to you, as it relates to us, as it relates to our love and obedience to you. Father, help our time this morning To rekindle the warmth of our love for you, our gratefulness to you, our satisfaction in you. That we would seek to be those who hear, well done, good and faithful servant. In your name, amen. Well, again, the context for Jesus speaking this parable is the confrontation with the religious leaders. They've come to him multiple times now, but they've come to him questioning on whose authority has he done such a thing. Jesus put the question to him, and we saw that last week. You answer me a question. Who gave John the Baptist his authority, or who was the source of the authority for John the Baptist? Realizing the trap, they refused to answer. So Jesus refused to answer them, but instead began to indict them. And he indicted them, as we saw as it closed out last week, by noting that it will be the tax collectors and the harlots who will first enter the kingdom of God before they ever do. He doesn't let them respond to that. He continues on now and offers this additional parable, commanding them to listen to it. And yet, even though the context is the confrontation with the religious leaders, remember where he's standing. He's standing in the temple. This is Passover. As we've noted, it is likely that upwards of two million persons have now entered the city of Jerusalem. And the temple itself makes up an enormous portion of the city of Jerusalem, possibly as much at this time as one-third of the city. So it is flooded with persons round about. And Jesus, well, he draws a crowd. He is interesting. He overturns tables. And he lets birds out of their cages. Not only that, then he begins to heal people. And so he's acquired quite an attraction. He's got children singing, proclaiming that he is the son of David. He's got persons coming to him to be healed. And he's got a confrontational encounter with the religious leaders. And it is like so often the case, the benefit of this parable, while indicting the religious leaders is for the disciples and for the crowds. Now, certainly, if they continue to follow the religious leaders, they will incur the same judgment, the same wrath that we see so clearly evident in this parable. And yet the lesson here, the lesson to be learned, is for those who observe, which interestingly enough, includes us this morning. So what is there to learn from this parable? Well, first, as I've noted, it's a strange story. You may have picked up on some of the strangeness. Why would you send your son after they've killed the other two? But there's more to it than that. There's a lot about this story that is strange. Right at the beginning, the landowner, he has planted a vineyard. He, he sets up the wall. He dugs the wine press and he builds a tower. Now, what's unique about that is that's not his job. You see, the landowner would have bought the land and they would have found those who wanted to rent it out they would have done the work. They would have put in the effort. They would have exerted themselves to do this. Then they would have had to have waited four years for the produce to ripen to reach the point where they could then make use of it. But not this landowner. This landowner has already done the hard work. And he's prepared it such that, I mean, you see there with the wine press, he expects that as soon as he hands this over, it will produce fruit. Why else would you need a wine press? He's prepared their sustenance with the planting of the vineyard. He puts a wall around it which protects the vineyard and protects those working in the vineyard against wild animals. It allows them to grow. He's dug a wine press which provides the means for not only just reaping the fruit but enjoying the fruit of the vineyard beyond just eating the grapes or selling them. Note too that in In this, in this digging of the wine press, and in the giving of this, he's asking of them to enjoy the fruit of the vineyard. And then he builds a tower. And that tower provides both shelter for the workers and tenants, as well as a warning against danger, that they can look out and see if danger is approaching. It's different than the wall, and that the, the wall protects. The tower warns. But then it gets even stranger. Because after he sends that first group who go to collect, and that's his rightful, it's right for him to do that. It's right for him to go collect the produce. He's renting out this vineyard. He sends his servants to go collect. And they beat them. They kill them. They stone them. Well, what would you do in that case? Would you be so patient as to send more of your servants I mean, the servants themselves are valuable to you. They're not throwaways. Well, yes, and it highlights the seriousness of what's going on here. Yes, he sends more. He sends a larger number. They show up. They get beaten, killed, stoned. Now, what do you do? Well, if you're me, it's time for an armed escort who quickly dispatch of these vagabonds. Get rid of them. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's time for justice to be meted out. These are murderers. It is right and just for them to be punished, right? But not this landowner. This landowner is strange. He is unique. He's patient. He's long suffering. Now he sends his son. Surely now they will listen, they will revere. But what do they do to the sun? When the vine growers saw the sun, by the way, how did they see the sun coming from a distance? There's that tower. That tower that was there to warn of danger. That tower provided by the landowner, by the father of the sun, is now being used not to protect, but to harm the son of the very father who has created it. So they appropriate. They make use, they weaponize the father's gift of the tower to harm the son. They see him coming and they grab him the moment he enters the vineyard and throw him out of it and kill him. Again, this is a strange story. Now before we go any further, let me ask a couple of questions. This is a parable. It's not an allegory where every single thing has a direct correlation, but there are here figures that we are to understand. And I think a lot of this is rather obvious, isn't it? The Father, who is that? It's God, isn't it? I think anybody who has looked at this, anybody who knows the history of their Old Testament, recognizes that God is the Father here, He is the landowner. Isaiah, in fact, uses similar terminology in Isaiah 5, right there at the beginning in verses 1 to 2, to describe how God took Israel and planted her as a vineyard, (coughs) put walls around her, built a tower in her midst. Using that same language, it is emphasizing again that it's God who's at work. Now, the reference and everything after that is a little bit different because now you've got, he's dealing with the religious leaders, he's planting them in it, and unlike in Isaiah where he destroys the vineyard, here he repurposes it. So it's only by rough illusion, but that rough illusion draws attention to the creator of both of these vineyards and that it is God. And what about the servants? Well, actually, we can back up before the servants to the tenants. Those tenants, well, we know who he's addressing in this parable. We've already read the rest of the chapter. We know that this is the religious leaders. That's who these, these tenants are, these who have rented the land. And what of the servants that he sends when it's time to collect? Well, the servants are the faithful prophets and priests of old who have come to warn. How do I know this? How do you know I'm not making this up? Well, if we turn over a couple chapters to Matthew 23, 37, listen to what Jesus says concerning Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you, your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her, and you were unwilling. You see, those prophets, those faithful prophets and priests or religious leaders of old, have been sent time and again to warn the people of Israel. Oftentimes, directly to the religious leaders who had gone astray to warn them to turn back. And instead of heeding that admonition, time and again they abused, hurt, beat, killed, ignored the warnings of the prophets and of the faithful priests who would give such a warning. And what of the son? Well, you know the answer to that, don't you? The Son is the Son. It's Jesus. It's Christ. He's already foretold his death in Matthew 16, 21, that he would be abused, that he would be beaten, that he would be handed over to the religious leaders, to the scribes and the Pharisees. He repeated it again just a little bit earlier in chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. So it's no surprise whatsoever that he again does it here in this parable, that he foretells of his death. Now before we get to the question that Jesus then asks of his hearers, I want you to see a couple of just wonderful things that also come to light in this parable. And I'm probably going to frustrate you more than answer questions. But I want you to see how rich scripture is. Working backwards a little bit, what did they do with the son? They threw him out of the vineyard. Do you realize that there has been a pattern in Israel's history of taking a sacrifice and putting it outside of the walls, outside of the gates? So you going back all the way to Leviticus 16. Actually, our children know this. They've been studying this. So I could ask them, maybe I should let them come up here and finish this out. But they know, what what was it called? It was called a scapegoat. They would take two goats. They would lay the iniquity upon one and send it outside of the camp. It was there to symbolize something. Something that was far greater, far better than anything they could have imagined, which would be the Christ who would come and bear the iniquity of us all. The writer of Hebrews, you can turn there if you'd like, to Hebrews 13, notes it this way. When they say in Hebrews thirteen thirteen, So let us go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are see- seeking the city which is to come. You see, skipping to the end of the story... We actually do go to a sacrifice that is outside the gate that is still living because Christ rose from the dead. But there's more in this beautiful gospel-shaped story that is the Old Testament as it aims toward Christ. What do these vine growers seeing the sun from a distance remind you of? Does it remind you of any other group of persons who saw someone from a distance and plotted to kill him? Maybe a young man named Joseph. And his brothers, who they plotted against him, sold him away, the very one who later became their salvation. See, scripture, time and again, is pointing toward this Christ. It is this gospel shape of the Old Testament that points to Christ. But there's more, and it's going to come out as Jesus continues here in verses 40 and 41. Because Jesus asked them a question. And I'm really restraining myself here. I've I've got far too few notes, which means I have far too much to say. There's more you could say here about the graciousness of the landowner, the sovereignty of how he provides for them. How he sets up and he establishes it, how it was his work, not theirs, that earned them the vineyard. In fact, they did nothing to earn it, it was gifted to them, much like our salvation is gifted to us. This is a rich parable. And all those things are wonderful side trails, but this morning we're going to focus on the center. So Jesus asked them a question, and this question really gets to the heart, where he says, What will he do to these vine growers, he the Father? after they killed the son. And the religious leaders unknowingly at this point indict themselves, don't they? We know that they don't know it yet because in verse 45, they come to the realization at the end of the parables, really has to say, and you, there in verse 43 and 44. But they don't quite get it yet. So they go ahead and indict themselves. He says, bring these wretches to a wretched end. I like that. But what Jesus goes on to show is that he was rather gentle in the previous parable where he said that the tax collectors and harlots will get into the kingdom of God before the religious leaders do, because what he actually meant by that statement is they will never make it. We've seen this rejection from the moment Jesus left them that first day in the temple, they've been rejected. And he now shows that they are far worse than tax collectors and harlots. They are part of a murderous lineage. They are part of a murderous lineage. And their answer is not completely wrong, but it's incomplete. Yes, the Father will dispatch with these wretched ones, but that's not all. And so Jesus asks in verse 42, showing that they haven't fully answered the question, Have you never read the Scriptures? Now, this is like asking seminary students or pastors, have you never opened your Bible? To these scribes, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, that was incredibly insulting. Of course, we have. We've made several of our own copies, we know it backwards, forwards, upside down. Name a word, we'll finish the verse. But what he's asking is, do you not understand the scriptures? Have you not read and understood? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, there's a couple of wonderful things to note about this. First off, Jesus refers to all of scriptures, and yet he's going to draw upon this one phrase out of Psalm 118, and I'll come back to that in a moment, but out of Psalm 118 that encapsulates the gospel shape of scriptures, the gospel message of the scriptures. He's not just asking, Have you read this verse? He's asking if they have read all of the scriptures to understand what this verse and what his life is all about. And again, if you want to go down a rabbit trail, just not this morning, wait till this afternoon or later, you should do a study on the word stone and trace it. The stone that the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Psalm 118, maybe that sounds familiar to you, it should. It's the end of the... Hallel passages, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. Hallel meaning praise. It's what the pilgrims would sing on their way into Jerusalem during the different feasts, particularly the Passover feast. At the end of Psalm 118, which is the end, there is a phrase right before this, before or after, that says, Hosanna, Hosanna to him in the highest. Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Sound familiar? Quotes from the very same passages, probably echoing around them, because if they're children, they're still singing the same song. As they're singing this, he finishes it. Have you never read the scriptures? And notice that term rejected. That's an important term. It's very important for what follows in verse 43. You see, the builders, and they've rejected this stone. They have not touched this stone. They consider it unworthy, unusable. It is a stone untouched, uncut by human hands. But who is the stone and who are the builders? Again, we have this figurative language. I like it when we get the answer. And the answer is in Acts 4.11. Turn with me if you would. I'll back up to verse 8. So again, actually, back up to verse 5. You know what, just the beginning of Act. No, just kidding. Acts four verse five. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. This is the same group of persons. When they placed them in the center, that is, Peter and some of the other apostles, they began to question them. And notice the question they ask, by what power or in what name have you done this? It's the same context. It's the same question. By whose authority? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we were on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, again, the context is identical. Jesus was questioned by whose authority after healing a sick person? Then let it be made known to you all, to all the people of Israel, and by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. It's Christ. You want our authority? It's Christ. Now, if you want to know who his authority is, you lost your chance. He is the stone which was rejected by you. The builders. The builders. Which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved, by which we can be saved. The stone is Christ. The builders are the religious leaders. And they've ignored it, they've rejected this stone. And yet it's become more prominent, greater than all the others. And in fact, what was foretold in the Old Testament, they could not have fully imagined. Now, you have heard me say before, and this comes from my Old Testament study, my love of the Old Testament, that there is, with the exception of the revelation of the mystery of the church in Ephesians, there is no doctrine of the Old Testament, in the New Testament, that cannot be found in the Old. And that's true. I stand by that comment. But that does not mean that the Old Testament writers understood the fullness, the beauty, the Marvelousness of how those things would be unfolded. And that's why it says, This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It is beyond our comprehension. It was beyond our full understanding. We could never have imagined that it would be this good, this great, this amazing, this wonderful. Have you never read the scriptures? The stone, though, has a dual purpose. It is to be a blessing to those who believe, but it is to bring curse and judgment upon those who have rejected it. And so we read in verses 43 and 44, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, That is, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone, that means stumbles over it, will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Again, some of that terminology, some of those words may sound familiar. First, see the repetition of the term fruit. We've seen that. We saw that in Jesus' cursing of the fig tree because of its hypocritical evidence of fruit that was not there. It promised fruit but gave none. So Christ cursed it. We've seen the use of fruit all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. It's used all throughout the Gospels and the New Testament to speak of the produce, the product, the work, the evidence of our lives. And there could be good fruit and bad fruit. John describes it well when he says, upon being saved, you are to produce. Upon repenting, you are to bear fruit in keeping with, looking light, imitating repentance. That's the fruit that is being looked for here. It's the fruit that the tenants refuse to turn over to the landlord, landowner. We see this concept of fruit bookending these parables. But there's more than that. If the end of 44 sounds familiar, it should. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. And while you're turning there, don't miss what we said at the beginning, what we highlighted at the beginning that while asking the question, Isn't God a strange God? why would he tarry so long if his ultimate purpose is his kingdom and Christ as king why delay why all of this why this roundabout path keep that in mind as we continue daniel chapter 2 you may remember this i won't read the entire story a king named nebuchadnezzar funny name really powerful guy has a dream Demands that persons come and relate not just the meaning of the dream, but the dream itself, or else he'll kill everybody. Doesn't seem really fair. But God supernaturally endows Daniel, who had been taken into captivity into Babylon to be able to reveal the dream. And in that dream there was a great statue. The statue was made up of various metals. You had. You had gold, you had silver, you had bronze, you had iron, then you had this iron and clay mix. And this statue is standing there representing kingdoms of the earth. And then, out of nowhere, this stone comes and it crushes this statue to pieces. And look at how this stone is described in verse 34. You continued looking till a stone was cut out without hands, that is, without human hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then they were scattered like chaff, that is, like dust, away from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away, so there was not a trace of them to be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Want to know more about this stone? Go down to verses 44 and 45. In those days, O King, God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That kingdom will not be left for other for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. This stone, cut without human hands, will crush all other kingdoms, crush all opposition, leaving them in dust and will endure forever. When the chief priests and the scribes and the religious leaders heard those words, two things would have hit them right away. One, they would have recognized this allusion to Daniel 2 because they did, in fact, know the scriptures. They've read them. They just didn't understand them. But they would have understood the destruction that was promised. They also would have understood the kingdom reference. That's why verse 43 begins with a reference to the kingdom of God and then talks about crushing. Interestingly, as they're talking about stones, they would have been standing in the temple, a temple that the smallest stone in the temple complex, that made up the temple because they built it with stones. The smallest one would have weighed about two tons. Two to five were the small ones. The biggest stone is estimated to weigh 570 tons, 4.6 by 3.3 meters. We're talking about a bigger stone. Those were cut with human hands. This one is not cut with human hands. They would have understood that they were being judged. They were being put into the same category as all of those pagan nations, all of those false kingdoms that would come to an end as the kingdom of God was established. And rather than joining in that kingdom, they would be blown away like the chaff from the threshing floor. So you tell me, how should they respond to such a statement? Mercy, crying out for mercy. May it never be. What must I do to be saved? They should have been crying out. But how did they respond? More importantly, this morning, how do you respond when confronted with sin? How do you respond when confronted with the Word of God? When you recognize what he says and what he means, do you respond as these religious leaders? Now, you may not be trying to put Christ to death, but do you try to ignore him? Do you like Adam and Eve try to hide from the presence of God? Or do you repent and believe? When Jesus began speaking in parables in Matthew 11, he finished that first parable with a call to respond. He says, "Let him who ear has ears, hear. The term here is is often used for obey. It's the exact same term. The term hear and obey are synonymous oftentimes. We still do that today, don't we? You talk to your children and you say, did you hear me? Meaning, did you obey what I told you to do? In Matthew 11.15, and then he repeats it again in 13.9 and 13.43, when Jesus says, let him who has ears hear, he means let him who has ears. Let the one who has heard these words respond in obedience. Respond to the message. The very first part of that obedience is repentance. That's the message that is here. That's the message of the kingdom. The kingdom has drawn near. Will you repent and believe? We have a strange God. So strange that some say he's forgotten his promises. He's slow about his promises. Peter reminds us he's not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but what? He is patient towards all. Strange, but he is patient towards all, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He's a strange king. He doesn't immediately dole out judgment and punishment. He's long-suffering. He forgives the most horrendous of sins. He pardons abundantly. He's strange indeed. He's a king who desires to draw near to you. No king wants to be near his subjects, certainly not all the time. Why does he act so strangely? Why such a circuitous route to the kingdom? Jesus' second question in verse 42 is at the center. Have you never read the Scriptures? Because if you've read the Scriptures, you understand the gospel shape of the Old Testament and the message of the New Testament. You understand the message of a king and his kingdom. And importantly, you have not forgotten that he desires a people of his own possession who will inhabit this kingdom. That's why he is so strange to our eyes. In Exodus 19.6, after bringing Israel out from their bondage in Egypt, it says he made them his own possession. He repeats it in Deuteronomy 7. But you see, it doesn't end there. Because in 1 Peter chapter 2, and you can turn there, we hear the same promise. And notice what it comes in and what context it comes in. Beginning of verse 4. And coming to him as a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, stones cut out by the Father, are being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. That is our fruit. That is the fruit in keeping with repentance, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for you who disbelieve, the stone becomes judgment. What does it say? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, a stone of stumbling. And a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. But, and here's the answer. You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for God's own possession. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We do worship a strange God, but his strangeness is doing things more wonderful than we can ever imagine. No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor can the tongue fully confess and convey the beauty, the wonder, and the mystery of the plan of God. And yet we get a glimpse And we're told just enough so that we might become part of his possession. That we might enter into the kingdom with him. I'm sure there were many in the crowds that day standing about, looking on, listening. Considering the strangeness of the story and the strangeness of this man from Galilee. I wonder how many of them were there that day at the cross, how many of them in the days after repented and believed. Time has long passed for them to be able to turn and to repent, but it's still today for you. If you have never understood the message of the cross, the hope of salvation for those who are sinners, which is each and every one of us in this room, then today is the day of salvation. Repent, turn, Produce the fruit in keeping with repentance. One of those to whom the kingdom is given over to, who gets to partake in this kingdom. And for the rest of us who have already experienced the joy of this salvation, let us continue to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let us bear fruit that shows that we are a part of this kingdom. And let us continue preaching this strange message. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and even a parable like this spoken to religious leaders who had long since abandoned you. How instructive, instructive it is for us, how much it teaches us, how much it guides us, how much it warns us, how much it cares for us. Help us to submit to your word, to love you greater. Father, as we study something like this, let us recognize the goodness of you, acting as the owner, how you've prepared everything for us. You have prepared all the works beforehand that we should walk in them. You've already tilled the ground. You've made it so that all we have to do is reap the fruit. Help us to do that. Not to do it out of some sense of duty and obligation, but out of love, wanting to joyfully bring these offerings to you well good morning